Welcome to Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. This programme features a talk from a conference that the WFA held with the British Commission for Military History on the 1st of April 2017. The British Commission for Military History is an organisation which aims to promote through research, publication and discussion an understanding of British military history. For more information about the BCMH, go to their website at bcmh.org.uk. The joint conference focused on the armies of 1917. It examined the military forces of the Allies and the Central Powers. In particular, it discussed their tactical and technical advances, the internal issues affecting each army, such as their morale, and also military operations such as the Battles of Arras, Third Ypres, and Cambrai. In this episode, Dr Tim Gale gives a talk on the development of French armoured warfare doctrine in 1917. Good afternoon. Uh, <laughs> Professor Philpott will be examining the competence of the French army in general during 1917 in his keynote speech later. So, by contrast, I will be considering the competence of a very small part of the French army in 1917. It's tank force, the artillery speciale, or special artillery, which I'll be referring to as the AS. I'll come back to the title of my talk at the end of it. In 1917, the AS was a very new arm. Its first combat units only formed in December 1916 and January 1917. There were only a few thousand men in the AS in early 1917, although it would eventually become the size of a large (coughs) infantry division with nearly 20,000 men. However, its first combat outing was close to a disaster. Indeed, such was the scale of the tanks' perceived failure in their first engagement during the Nivelle Offensive in April 1917, it was thought that the AS was in danger of being disbanded. However, two successful tank operations at Le Faux and Malmaison later in 1917, restored confidence in the tanks and the French army went on to develop an effective armour doctrine. This doctrine lasted for the most part unchanged for the rest of the war and today I will discuss how this doctrine came to be formulated with the limited experiences available in 1917. The original conception of the French tank force came from a senior artillery officer, Colonel later General Jean-Baptiste Eugène Estienne. He wrote to the French Commander-in-Chief General Job several times during 1915, suggesting an armoured vehicle with tracks should be developed. His initial letters disappeared into the bureaucracy of French GHQ, GQG, and he was forced to approach Joff privately, which resulted in an immediate interview with one of Joff's Deputy Chiefs of Staff, General Maurice Janin. Estienne's initial ideas on tank combat were centred on their being used in a surprise attack across a wide front without the usual accompanying artillery barrage. The tanks would be moved into prepared positions several kilometres behind the French line on the night prior to an attack. For the attack, the tanks would leave the French front line without a barrage before the infantry, who would then advance to the first enemy trench line when the tanks had taken it. Half the tanks would then advance to the next enemy position, while the other half suppressed any enemy infantry still in the trench line already taken. Once the French infantry was in possession of the first trench line, the tanks would regroup and attack the second trench. Estienne expected that such a swift advance would take the first German artillery line within an hour. He also suggested that the assault tanks should be followed by tanks towing sledges with infantry on them for exploitation. After further examination at GQG, it was agreed that tank manufacture would begin. 
It's worth noting that it took less than two months from the initial meeting of Estian and Janin for GQG to draw up detailed tank specifications accompanied by clear ideas about how they would be used. The French Army had two tank designs in service in 1917, the Schneider and the Saint-Germain. Both designs pushed contemporary automobile technology to the limits, a problem that was compounded by the lack of any experience with track vehicles within French industry. These medium tank designs were particularly troubled by manufacturing and design faults. The first of these to go into production in 1916 was the Schneider, essentially an armoured rectangular box on an American Holt tractor chassis. It was armed with a short barrel 75mm gun mounted on the right side of the tank with a very limited arc of fire, only 20 degrees, and it had a machine gun on either flank. It weighed just over 13 metric tonnes, but the primitive engine struggled to move the tank at more than walking pace. It was also very crowded, as this picture shows, and our particularly bad um, design fault was having the engine, uh, sorry, having the petrol tank right at the front of the tank, which meant that if it was hit, the tank usually caught fire, and as it only had two very small doors at the back, that was usually the end of the crew. Elements within the Ministry of Armaments independently commissioned another medium tank, the Saint-Germain, and the first that Estienne and Joffre knew about it was when the Ministry informed them that they'd ordered 400 of them. <laughs> this was larger, 23 tonnes, and was armed with a full-size 75mm gun with an even more limited arc of fire, 5, uh, 5 degrees, than the Schneider, and it had four machine guns. Its tracks were driven by two electric generators that were in turn powered by a petrol engine an ambitious arrangement that French engineering was unable to make reliable until late in the war. It was not as cramped internally as the Schneider, but internal communication was very difficult. Indeed, one tank commander described combat as nine men, nine battles. Yeah. <laughs> the first instructions on tank tactics came from GQG in August 1916 and were essentially just a refined version of Estian's original ideas. The tanks were to enable an offensive to take possession of the battlefield over several hours on a large front all the way up to the enemy's artillery battery line. This would be done in such a way as to make the following infantry attack a matter of occupying the taken positions, followed by the cavalry who would exploit this success. To maximise surprise and shock, the tanks were to advance simultaneously on their objectives, which ensured both a quick advance and conserved ammunition. The instructions were quite specific in recognising that once the tanks had set off, it was going to be very difficult to issue new orders to them. It was also recognised that getting the tanks to the front line without being noticed by the enemy was going to be problematic. These ideas were made almost immediately redundant when the British unveiled their tanks to the Germans in September 1916, due to both the removal of surprise and the limitations demonstrated by the British tanks. There was considerable dismay in France when it was learned that the British intended to use their tanks in 1916, but Haig refused to delay the first British tank attack until the French tanks were ready. You will read, even in pieces written about the First World War in 1939-40, the French were still complaining about it uh, many, many years after the war had finished. However, they were stuck with this, and a new tactical approach had to be developed, and the tanks became mobile artillery for the infantry. Estian set out the new parameters for the tanks in October 1916. The role of the AS was to precede the infantry and be their guide and light. 
Being formed as part of the artillery arm, the AS used artillery terms for its units. The tactical and administrative tank unit was established as the group, a company, which consisted of four batteries, each with four tanks, the battery being the manoeuvre unit. Groups were organised into groupement, battalions. Attacks were to be carefully planned using aerial photographs, with the orders for the attack of each battery made in detail. Tanks would move to their starting positions at night to avoid detection, possibly with artillery fire used to mask the noise of the tanks. Although the tanks were armed with cannons and machine guns, their main strength was considered to be the ability to keep advancing under enemy fire. The cannons' primary role was to engage enemy machine guns. Schneiders were not expected to engage targets beyond 200 metres, and the Saint-Germains would not normally fire beyond 600 metres. Because the tanks were to use their guns at short range, this was another reason to attack in fog or during the early morning. SDN summed up the purpose of the tank guns as only fire when you can't march. A tank attack was to have three distinct phases. In the first, the tanks would help the infantry take the successive trenches of the first enemy position. Each enemy artillery battery would then be attacked by specific tanks in conjunction with an infantry attack. The last phase would be the tank attack on the second enemy position, which would be, theori which would be theoretically compete in less than three hours. Once again, Estienne stated that the tanks should attack only under the cover of fog or early morning light. The British experience had also shown the necessity for close infantry and tank cooperation, and an infantry company was therefore attached to each tank battery, primarily tasked with the removal of obstacles, but also to assist in consolidating captured positions. One very simple but effective tactic that the Germans had taken after the British tank attack was to widen their trenches, which immediately removed the ability of the French tanks to operate independently of the French infantry. There was no possibility of modifying the existing tank designs to enable them to cross wide trenches, and making a way over for these for the tanks became a vital task for the supporting infantry. The first French tank operation was undertaken within this methodological framework and was far from a success. Two AS battalions participated in 5th Army's attack at Juvincourt on the 16th of April 1917 as part of the Nouvelle Offensive. Uh, this is one of the splendid maps that Barbara Taylor created for my uh, pen and sword book. Having been promised that the enemy artillery would be totally suppressed, the groupement made their approach march in long single-file columns in broad daylight and in full view of the German artillery observers, who were nearly all on commanding heights above the battlefield, such as the Crayon Plateau, which is sort of over in this direction. Group Monchaux, which was uh, on the left-hand side, was shot to pieces by indirect German artillery fire without even getting past the first German trenches. Oh, uh, yes, it was intended to end up here, but it never got any further than here. Group Monbosso's commander, seen here, trapped with a cane on the, your left-hand side. Grimmel Bosso's commander, Major Louis Bosso, was killed when his tank was hit by artillery before his battalion could deploy. His groupement carried on and some isolated tanks penetrated past Guinicourt, three kilometres further into the German lines than the French infantry. However, these modest successes had been brought at considerable human and material cost. 76 tanks out of the 132 engaged that day were put out of action, 57 being destroyed by German artillery. 
71 men were killed and 108 wounded. If all three of the available group more had been used on the 16th of April, then the subsequent story of the AS might have been very different. <coughs> Fortunately, one group more had not participated in the April attacks and was therefore available to be used at a later stage <coughs> of the offensive, which allowed the tanks a much better showing than in their first experience of combat. This second AS operation, a mere two weeks after the shock of 16th of April, was executed in a very different manner from the first, demonstrating, in my view, a remarkable ability within the AS to learn from experience and rapidly introduce effective innovations. <coughs> SDN and his staff took the opportunity to analyse the 16th of April attacks in detail and make sure that mistakes were not repeated. Although the AS staff was small, fewer than 100 men, it was highly proficient. His second in command was Colonel Jean Monhoven, a acknowledged tactical expert from one of the elite colonial regiments, and his technical advisor was Major Joseph Dumenck, organiser of the Sacred Way at Verdun, and an expert on motorised vehicles <coughs> and logistics. They also brought in a number of the group commanders who had fought on the 16th of April to help them. The AS staff looked long and hard at what had happened on the 16th of April. The lengthy approach march was immediately identified as a serious mistake. This time, three batteries of each group were placed close to the French front lines before the operation, and they would advance with the infantry. The group's command posts were placed with the infantry division CPs to keep liaison as close as possible. Each battery had specific tasks and objectives, unlike on the 16th of April, when objectives had been given to groups, and one battery would always be held in reserve. The inline formation of the group mods on the 16th of April was agreed to be impossible to control, and rather than moving in a line of groups, rather like we see on the previous map, the group mods were echeloned in depth. This gave the group mod commander the ability to reinforce success and concentrate effort, in addition to being easier to command. Particular attention was paid to protecting the tanks from enemy artillery fire. There was an aircraft dedicated to keeping the Group Mont commander informed of his tank's movements and to signal artillery fire onto enemy anti-tank batteries. This resulted in a very successful operation on the 5th of May, only marred by mechanical difficulties with few casualties and all objectives taken. 19 Schneiders went into action with only three breaking down, whereas the 12 Saint-Germain's had considerable difficulty on the terrain, six breaking down with one being destroyed by German artillery. The quote there was, the first technician to see the Saint-Germain said, my God, it's an elephant on the legs of a gazelle. And in many respects, he was correct. The large-scale disturbances, sorry, just one more thing. So, the results of May the 5th at the foe uh, were encouraging, particularly as only one tank had been destroyed. The large-scale disturbances in the French army after the Nivelle Offensive meant that only limited operations were undertaken during the remainder of 1917. Pétain, the new commander-in-chief, took the opportunity to launch a series of offensives with strictly limited objectives in order to restore morale in the army and also to experiment with tactics. This is another marvellous Barbara Taylor map. One such operation was made by French Sixth Army against the plateau containing the remains of the pre-war Malmaison fort. Capture of this plateau would give the French army an enfilading position over the Islet River Valley and allow flanking fire on the enemy positions on the eastern part of the Chemande Dam and the Aisne Valley. In this operation, the AS units were engaged under a provisional framework described by Pétain in a note to the armies on tank use, 
which reflected the lessons drawn from the battles in April and May. Pétain emphasised the importance of close liaison between the tanks and other arms, the infantry, artillery and aviation. As with all attacks, he said, success required the effective neutralisation of all the enemy artillery that could fire into the combat zone, and neutralisation required hitting its observation posts as well as the artillery itself. All the German OPs were to be blinded by smoke shells, and the advance of the tanks was to be covered by specially designated aircraft. Whenever possible, the tanks would attack in early morning to utilise its low visibility to mask their movement on the battlefield. Once an attack was decided, tanks would be attached to an infantry division whose commander would develop the operational plan in conjunction with the tank commanders who would then liaise with the relevant infantry regimental commanders. During combat, the tank unit's overall commander was to be stationed close to the divisional commander and the group commanders were to be with the infantry's regimental commanders. Tanks were always to be moved at night prior to combat and were to be placed in cover closest to the front lines. Reconnaissance was to continue right up to the evening before the battle. If the tanks were not attacking the first position, they were to remain in cover until called forward by the infantry, a tank liaison officer being attached to the infantry to ensure this was done correctly. <coughs> the experience of 5th of May demonstrated the utility of having each tank group go into action by successive echelon, with one or two batteries making the initial attack, while the other batteries remained in cover until their intervention was necessary. The advance of tanks was to be covered by a rolling barrage of smoke shells. Once the tanks had arrived on the enemy positions, they were to neutralise them and then signal the infantry forward. The note points out the danger of leaving the tanks stationary on the battlefield, as happened on the 16th of April, and they were only to do this until such time as the French infantry had occupied and organised the conquered area. If further work was needed to allow the tanks to continue to advance, they should be moved to predetermined cover or as far from the conquered trench as possible, until a new passage for them had been made and their attack could resume. The note emphasised that it was, quote, indispensable, unquote, for the most thorough training to be had by the infantry if they were to cooperate effectively with the tanks. These thoroughly sensible recommendations about tank deployment were put to the test at Malmaison. At the Battle of Malmaison on the 23rd of October 1917, French 6th Army had 38 Schneider and 30 Saint-Germain tanks to support the three attacking infantry corps, as well as a copious amount of artillery. There was no attempt at surprise. Over five days, French artillery fired, over just one, fired just over one and a half million shells at the German positions. When the operation was over on the 26th of October, the French had advanced in some places nearly six kilometres and had captured over 11,000 Germans and significant amounts of equipment. This had been achieved with casualties of fewer than 12,000 men, <coughs> comparing very favourably with 30,000 casualties in this, early, in this area in April and May. From the point of view of the AS, the, tank, the battle's most important result was that it restored confidence in the tanks within the French army. For example, one infantry colonel noted the considerable effect that the tanks had had both on the morale of the French and the German infantry. Malmaison demonstrated that the tanks would suffer comparatively light casualties provided that the enemy artillery was sufficiently suppressed, although an extensive artillery preparation would tend to render the ground unusable to them. Only two tanks were destroyed and there were 82 casualties at Malmaison, light compared with later engagements. French counter-battery work had been very effective, and this is presumably why so few <coughs> tanks were destroyed by German artillery. The major lesson of Malmaison was that it was getting the tanks into action close enough 
to the enemy was going to be difficult whenever an extensive artillery preparation had taken place due to the damage it caused <coughs> to the ground. However, once the tanks were within close range, it was clear the Germans had limited options to counter them. German prisoners at Malmaison expressed considerable dismay that their counter-tank preparations had been of no avail, stating that the tanks had caused disarray in their ranks. The tanks could thus be very valuable to the infantry, particularly in relation to keeping <coughs> down casualties, an issue of pressing concern to Pétain, GQG and the French government at this point in the war. The experience gained from 1917 was considered sufficient to enable provisional tank regulations to be issued. This was done on the 29th of December 1917. The tank regulations contained two main elements, the regulations dictating the actions and preparation of the AS units themselves and more general rules uh, regulating how the tank units were used in conjunction with the rest of the army. Initially, these two parts were bundled together in one large document, the provisional instruction for the employment of tanks. This received only one set of major modifications, largely due to the introduction of the Renault light tanks and the changes to the organisation of the AS this required in 1918. The light tanks, however, did not change the general methodology of tank use, and thus the instruction of December 1917 remained the basis for tank tactics and operations throughout the rest of the war. It's thus a key document in the development of tank tactics in the Great War French Army. The instruction starts by defining the aim of the AS. It says, the AS acts as accompanying artillery for the infantry, immediately acting to the demands and necessities of combat. Note the change here from the tank's original role as the infantry's guide and light, as I mentioned earlier. The instruction emphasised the mechanical limitations of the medium tanks, particularly in relation to crossing broken terrain and wide trenches. At Malmaison, of the 30 Saint-Germain <coughs> that had gone into action, only four actually managed to attack the Germans. In relation to the organisation of the AS units, this was in line with the experiences of the year. At Juvencourt, the group commanders had considerable difficulty in communication with, little alone control over, their batteries. And thus the group became three rather than four batteries. The group were organised to include supply and repair units, which gave them the ability to engage in operations without the necessity of further support. The AS units were only to be used under the following conditions. There should not be a long approach march. The battlefield should not be heavily damaged by heavy artillery. Thus, the tank should generally be used when there is a reduced artillery preparation. The attack should be in depth unless the ground is very favourable for tank movement. The AS was to fight in close liaison with the infantry. The most dangerous enemy of the AS was the cannon. And actually, if you look at this quickly, I know we don't like uh, graphs apparently, but it does give you an idea of how true this was, indeed, all the way through to the end of 1918. Coming back to the instruction, the corps and divisional commanders were expected to take significant measures to protect the tanks, mainly through the suppression of enemy artillery. Finally, the instruction says that the AS was, in a material sense, used up quickly in combat, and it was always thus necessary to provide sufficient tank reserves. So, by way of conclusion, the French army, in my view, had developed sound tank doctrine by early 1918, but implementing these tactical and operational ideas that year proved very problematic. As Clausewitz said, 
Everything in war is very simple, but the simplest thing is difficult. This idea is beautifully illustrated, in my view, by the case of the French Army's tank regulations. With limited experience, the French Army had well-thought-out doctrine for their tank units and the other arms they were supporting or being supported by. The difficulties came in implementing the tank regulations, particularly outside of the tank units, which demonstrates that having sound ideas about tactics and operations is only part of what is required for military effectiveness, and to some extent, it's the easy part of that. Now, the implementation of the tank regulations is a story of 1918 and outside of today's remit, although I do hope that I'll have an opportunity to talk to you about this next year. If you can't wait until then, I must, <laughs> I must immodestly refer you to my current book on the French tank force published by Pen and Sword. It covers the operations uh, and also a great deal more about doctrine. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.